Hello from London, Bratislava and Magdeburg. My name is Mark. And I'm David and you're listening to the Check Your Facts podcast. As Mark likes to say, uh, a little podcast about media, journalism and everything related uh, with us, the hosts. Hello. How are you, Mark? Oh, I'm fine. And I'm very happy because the last episode was like retweeted by some guy from New York Times, um, the one with Cat. So, yeah, maybe it's not so little anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. So maybe we are growing. So the biggest biggest news of the day when we are recording this episode is Twitter went from 140 to 280. I believe by the time this episode is out there, like no one remembers. Yeah, it's going to be two weeks or so, but um, I haven't tweeted anything more than 140 characters, I have to say. <laughs> like when the when the news came out, I was yeah. like, the my, my only thought was like, I have to tweet like more than 40 characters. Like that was like my on only thought. No. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Um, it was kind of the signature move of Twitter to have this very small character number. But as it's always with news and with new inventions and with development, at uh, in the first moment, everyone is like, oh, how can you do this? And how can you change that? And just, I don't know, three months later, everyone is, uh, what the fuck? I don't care. <laughs> it's just It's just normal now. So... I bet in like three or four months, nobody's talking about it anymore. Yes, and like I, like there's like no bridge coming up to me to 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 talk like to invite our our guest to the podcast. So I just go straight. Oh, she's on Twitter. <laughs> she's she is on Twitter. You have to be, uh, you, you you better follow her because she's she's tweeting a lot and she's tweeting uh, um, many good uh, not only thoughts but like great links to articles I, I, I basically uh, like to click through to because uh, those are the first times I see those articles so uh, with that being said I would like to welcome uh, Federica Cherubini to the podcast I hope I'm pronounced it right yes it's right hello hello so you're joining us from London but the the name suggests that you're not uh, not a Londoner I'm not British no I'm not I'm Italian Um, yeah, and I've been in London for three years now. Wow, but but your English is like super British, <laughs> 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 which is nice. I, I I love British English actually more than I, I love American, but I <laughs> uh, but, but that's like really subjective. Um, <clears throat> any, anyway, so how how did you end up in London? So I end up in London via Paris. So I studied and graduated in Milan, where I'm from, and then I moved to Paris. Um, originally, I thought I was going to stay in Paris for a month and learn French, and I ended up staying four years. <laughs> and then um, I moved um, to London three years ago. Um, so yeah, I basically um, told my family I'll go to Paris for a month and I'll be back. Um, that never really happened. <laughs> well, is it, is it like really easy for an Italian person to learn French? Um, yes, it is. Uh, it's actually, um, uh, well, I don't know, maybe not that easy. Let's say it's easier to pick up the structure of the sentence and um, maybe I can, I can guess a bit more than English, but I studied English way more than French, so my English is better than my French. <laughs> I see. 
And uh, I guess uh, our our next next question, well, at least my next question is like, so how how did you get to journalism? What did you study, and where did you work before? So, I kind of thought I always wanted to be in journalism. Um, and of course, when I was a little girl, I thought I was going to be a journalist. And then I realized I wasn't really a reporter for real. I was more interested in how journalists work. So I um, started um, focusing at university on everything about journalism. Um, and so I did two dissertations, um, one for my undergrad on um, the role of uh, news ombudsman. So the public editor, that was a time where um, the New York Times and a lot of um, US publication were um, focusing and investing on having public editors. And then um, for my master dissertation, I did a comparison between um, the UK um, press system and the Italian press system. Um, and so I guess I've always been interested in, in, in the behind the scene of journalism. Um, despite having studied journalism. And then um, during uni, I was working for a magazine in Italy. And then I moved to Paris and I found the perfect job. And I was working for the World Association of Newspapers, WANIFRA, um, um, which is um, an organization that um, represents news publishers around the world, from Brazil to Singapore. And I was working for the editorial part of the operation in Paris and I was basically, I started as an intern writing about the news industry. Um, I remember, uh, I don't know, articles about New York Times paywall and when we you were talking before about how quickly things move, um, it seems a year ago when we were talking about the New York Times paywall. Um, so yeah, I, I stayed for um, in Paris working for Wanifra for four years. I was organizing conferences uh, about the news industry. Uh, I collaborated to a few reports. Um, we did a report on online comment moderation, um, where we talked to 114 publications around the world about how they were moderating um, online comments and all the issues they were um, with that. Um, and then um, I was used to Basically, I was used to go around and visit newsrooms around the world, which is still one of my favorite things. Um, I was quite lucky to be able to do that. Um, and then I moved to London uh, and uh, I worked for um, the Reuters Institute in Oxford, which is a research center based in Oxford. Um, and again, I was doing um, studies and reports on how the news industry works um, and basically how... Um, journalism is um, leading to its future. Um, and then I joined um, Content Ask International, where I am now, where I am um, head of knowledge sharing, and I joined um, um, a year ago. Before we dig deeper into the Content Ask uh, thing, I would like to know, because I always thought about maybe you could move to some English-speaking country and start over with your journalism career but um, then again it's really hard even if you're kind of fluent in the language writing journalism as opposed to I don't know just talking to your friends or even doing a European podcast maybe um, how hard was it and uh, were you like super talented well, obviously uh, you are when you're like three years in London and sound like a Londoner but uh, how difficult was it for you to start like in a completely different country with a different language than your mother tongue <laughs> no, I'm not. I don't. I don't think I'm. I'm super talented. Um, I think um, 
I was working in English in Paris too, uh, and you know, I had studied English um, at school and in Milan, and I had focused a lot, but I never really use it um, every day for my daily life. Um, I think I almost found writing at the beginning easier than like speaking and socializing because I had more time to think about what I wanted to write. Um, it's of course a different style. Uh, I'm also I'm not a reporter, so I don't know if I. Um, would be able to do the same kind of job if I was um, working as a journalist in a newsroom. Um, and of course, um, you know, as, as everyone, I need editing. Um, but I think, um, you know, when you spend a lot of time talking about work and thinking about journalism and the things you do every day in English, I think at some point just kind of becomes easier. I don't really remember. I, I, it was very difficult at the beginning. At some point, it became easier. <laughs> I believe that, yeah. And uh, one famous uh, German journalist, uh, Wolfgang Blau, is, uh, joined Condé Nast some years ago now. And I think he's one of the most interesting and forward-thinking journalists in Europe right now. So um, if you're good enough, I bet you can make it like everywhere. Then the, the, the language barrier <laughs> isn't that high or big or whatever. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I actually, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I told you before we started uh, recording this podcast that I'm really interested in the stuff that, like, I, I'm maybe more interested in the stuff that you did before <laughs> than you're doing now. But we're also like very interested in what you're doing now. But um, so when when you worked for uh, for for Vanifra and also also Reuters, as you mentioned, you you traveled and uh, did these studies and. Uh, in this podcast, we like to talk like more about the European journalism side of things, and and m mostly or like mainly, if you see our studies, like you come across some media or journalism studies, they are like largely focused on uh, like the uh, American media houses or the UK uh, publishing houses. Sometimes maybe like Germans because they are big, but. Um, If if you could tell me like why why do you I mean you, you can correct me if I'm like wrong but why why do you think this is like uh, in in uh, Europe we have obviously the Reuters Institute of Journalism which uh, puts up a yearly uh, study and it's including including like more and more countries and Slovakia there was like first time this year which which is nice and so so i'm i'm like interested when you did this uh, was did, did do you think it was like more us and like less europe studies or is anyone from these like institutes thinking about like or oh, we should go and do more studies in like countries which are not like represented and maybe there are some like interesting there's some interesting stuff going on Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, so at the Reuters Institute, um, not only the digital uh, news report that you mentioned um, covers um, a lot of countries and indeed uh, also a lot of European but global countries, not just the US and the UK, um, but generally in all the studies. And I've mainly um, worked on uh, on three. On one was the lead author on editorial analytics and in the other ones I contributed with other authors and um, all of them were really much focused on what's happening in Europe. I think from one point of view is kind of understandable and maybe normal to be fascinated by what's happening in the US and the UK. It's easier because it's easier to get the information around because 
a lot of the of the media and outlets that cover the industry uh, are in English, and of course, the English uh, is the language we are speaking at the moment. So it's clearly um, the reason why everything is in English. But there is so much to learn um, from um, everywhere in the world, and I always found very fascinating that um, you know at the end of the day there is one New York Times and a lot of small newsrooms all around the world. And to be honest, there are not as many publishers that can compete and can be the New York Times and can do the innovation that the New York Times uh, does or the investment. So I think it's important to have to be able to look at everything. And what when we did these studies at the Reuters Institute, the focus was really trying to find lessons that were applicable for all of them. Um, of course, there is always something to learn from the New York Times, but we also were very interested in focusing on a different level, on a regional level. But if you see now, like Neiman Lab um, is also starting to cover innovation in Europe. Um, Journalism UK UK um, has been traveling um, recently and covering more European news. Um, Slice Newsroom um, covers the Asian market. Um, I think more and more, um, we are opening up to um, be interested in studying more closer um, other realities, not just um, the English-speaking word. You, you actually touched one of the things I was like uh, exactly thinking of, like many of the, uh, like so true. Neiman Lab, Journalism.co.uk, they are doing like a f- great job, like covering more and more countries, uh, also outside like their like home base, uh, which is like UK and US, and uh, th- that's great and. Yes, I can see in the like past few years this happening, but I just I just like when you were talking about you working in at Vanifra and uh, Reuters, I just uh, thought back like some some years ago when I visited some of the conferences and uh, then there came these high profile people from uh, you know across the Atlantic and they were talking about like how they do what they do, uh, but but they never like like. Not never. That's like this untrue. But like, m- m- I I was just thinking like, what can I draw f- like uh, take from this? Because this was everything was like, okay, so this will be expensive. This will be for like, uh, I, I'll 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 need like many graphics people. So 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 uh, th- that's that's what that's why I asked the question actually. Yeah, well, for the editorial analytics report that I wrote with um, Rasmus Kleis Nielsen, who's the director of the Reuters Institute, report, um, Institute, we interviewed publication in Slovakia, Poland, the Netherlands, Germany, France. Uh, we really tried to, um, Italy, uh, we really tried to move away from the sole um, English language perspective. And I thought it was really interesting. And to be honest, um, one of the interesting examples from the editorial analytics was um, from Germany and um, from Die Welt and what they had developed. So, you know, it's not it's not just about um, the US and the UK. There is much more around. So you mentioned the, the, the study that you co-authored uh, about the, the analytics. Uh, what do you think was like, I, I, I've, I've read most of it. Uh, uh, it's uh, like I believe 40 pages long. It's 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 not like too long, and it it uh, it has it's nicely structured, uh, and uh, yeah, it is true that you touched uh, on the analytics in in different countries. And when like looking back, what do you think was like the the most fascinating like thing that you found out? 
I really enjoyed doing that and it was February 2016 uh, when we published it so it feels like a long time ago um, for how <laughs> fast our industry moves. Um, I think what was really interesting is that, um, you know, back then it was the time where we were talking more and more about analytics and analytics, editorial analytics. So the analytics had moved from the marketing department into the newsroom. It was a time where more and more role like um, audience development editor, growth editors were starting to um, emerge and, and, and be um, quoted more and more. And I think what was interesting is that we managed through these interviews to go beyond of um, the concept of, you know, analytics means like and looking at analytics just means having big screens around a newsroom and like staring at a screen with big numbers going up and down. And so I think um, one of the things that we noticed at the time was how and to what degree different newsrooms were getting more sophisticated about it. And I think we learned a few lessons and that, you know, first of all, even those who are doing and or dealing with analytics very well, um, they're not doing perfectly. Analytics and, and data generally is not perfect. And uh, I think there has been, I think we moved, we moved away from that a bit now, but um, at the time it was still a bit of um, skepticism about um you know, looking at the data and looking at the numbers is kind of a bad thing because we don't want to replace editorial judgment. And I think it was really interesting because a lot in a lot of this conversation it emerged that it's nothing to do with that. Um, and so, for example, good analytics in a newsroom we um, noticed were about tailoring the analytics to the editorial priorities and organizational imperatives of the newsroom. So. It's, it's not just what's the numbers, but why is that number interesting? So what are you trying to achieve? And because of that, what's the metric that tells you more about that? So for example, um, if you, and, and that's also, of course, um, linked to what is your business model. Like, are you trying to, re to get um, reach because you're based on uh, digital advertising? Are you a subscription business? And then probably your most important metric is a conversion rate um, or the bounce, uh, bounce rate or how many people um, come back to your site and if you want to look at loyalty. So I think we, especially like two years, almost two years um, from, from when we wrote the study, that has evolved a lot. Um, but still, I think it's still important to remember that, you know, not all the metrics are the same and not all the metrics are the same story. Um, and then we also noticed that there were two kind of ways of looking at analytics. One was used to inform short-term strategy. Um, so yes, of course, like monitoring um, Chartbeat uh, or any other tool that tells you um, what's working well and moving things around on the homepage and making sure that your stories actually reach the audience you have written them for. Um, but also um, analytics can inform the long-term strategy uh, of, of a newsroom and inform an effective use of resources uh, and development of new editorial tools. And actually they can, can help you understand if you've written a very uh, important story you're very proud of, but that story is not reaching your audience, what can you do better to, to make that story reach the audience? Um, and I think in the evolution of, of, the, of the use of analytics that we've seen in, in so far, I think one of the things we found most interesting was 
But analytics need to be able to provide actionable information. Um, you know, it was a time in 2016 where it was kind of becoming um, used to um, for journalists around the newsroom to receive a morning email that said this was a traffic of the of the day before performance about this and that. But, you know, how many? were actually moving forward. Like once you know that that article performed really well and you have a very high number, what does it tell you? Like how do you benchmark? Um, you know, how good are we in measuring across device? How much are we mixing uh, apples and oranges and talking about different metrics that means different things? So I think the very fascinating thing about the study was learning about the degree of sophistication in the use of analytics and how we were moving from resistance from the journalists to curiosity about really using them to make the best of it. Um, and I think if I can suggest, um, if anyone is interested in, in, in reading more about analytics, um, Chris Moran, uh, who was the audience editor at The Guardian and now a special project editor at The Guardian, um, wrote a lot um, on analytics. And um, recently, a few months ago, there was a piece um, from Franklin Flores on um, called When Silicon Valley Took Over Journalism, um, who's very critical about um, the impact of Silicon Valley and especially of this like data-led culture on what was happening to journalism. Um, and I, Chris Moran wrote a very interesting rebuttal to that, saying, you know, you can never say, oh, you know, it wasn't the data that made me do that. Um, you can never take the data aside from the editorial judgment. Uh, and I think the most important thing is learning to be data-informed rather than data-led. Mm, that, that sounds really like, yeah, I agree. Um, it's it's like what what you mentioned is one of the things we... we we still struggle and like are, 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 are thinking about like what what are the like analytics that like people should be looking at and like is is it enough to just give them data or obviously it's not but like how 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 to make understand like which data is useful for whom uh, in in the newsroom and actually not only in the newsroom but also uh, in the other departments of the, I would say the, the the whole company, the publishing house, which actually leads me to the to the role you are uh, doing now at at Conde and Ast, which which stands like in your Twitter bio, like you're the head of knowledge sharing. Um, when I was uh, looking for more information on on, on this mysterious um, uh, title, I, I I found a, a, a like a. Uh, a little bit, just a little bit more detailed uh, bio on Journalism Festival site, uh, where I believe you were one of the speakers last year or this year. Sorry, this year. Yes. This year, and that said, like you were like bringing the knowledge not only across the editorial but also like the business side of things, and not only like in your like headquarter but all over like the different divisions. So like. Uh, could you elaborate on that? <laughs> yes. Um, I'll start with telling you more about um, Condonas International. Um, so, as I mentioned, I joined Condonas International um, over a year ago, and um, you mentioned before Wolfgang Blau, um, who's now the president of Condonas International, um, and I joined um, as part of his team, uh, based in the headquarters in London. Um, so, Condonas International is the sister company of Condonas US, and we oversees um, 11 only owned companies 
uh, around the world. So um, Mexico and Latin America, um, Spain, Germany, France, um, Italy, um, Russia, China, Taiwan, Japan and India. I hope I got them all. Um, and so, of course, if you think about um, the needs of um, the print business before, um, there wasn't very much of the need of cooperation. And of course, um, all the additions, so across all these countries, we have um, a portfolio of um, very powerful magazine. We have Vogue and GQ, Vanity Fair, Condé Nast Traveller, Wired, Architectural Digest, um, and before, um, you know, these editions and all these companies um, were kind of living in a, in a bit of a sided um, ways and um, each country was, and each operation was unique um, to each country and worked amazingly well in the past. Uh, of course, with the drivers of change uh, behind um, the changes in technology and, and digital landscape, um, we've started to rethink um, the way of content distribution work and the internal organizational um, model of the company. Um, which is a company with an incredible story. Uh, you know, um, Condé Nast uh, comes from Condé Montrose Nast, um, who bought um, Vogue in uh, 1909, uh, and then um, in around 1960s um, was bought by the Newhouse family, still a family-owned business. Um, British Vogue launched in beginning of 1916, I think, and a few years later in France. Um, so it's an amazing portfolio, very rich, um, covering so many different regions from, again, Mexico to China. Um, and so our team uh, in the headquarters in London um, works across um, the mar all these 11 different markets, across publications uh, and across um, departments and area. In my role specifically, I um, am part of the strategy and research um, team, and I I, I work as a bridge, basically, so I connect the dots between a lot of the things we, we're doing. Um, I try to harness um, success stories and share best practice, um, put people uh, in touch with each other when they're working on a similar project. Uh, and it's a lot of, let's say, community building, internal community building. Um, so. Um, everyone works in data across the company. It's, it's part of the Continental International data community. Uh, and they shared um, best practice. They share advice. Uh, they are support group. They are a real network. Uh, and, you know, of course, all these publications are unique in the way they are to each market. And Vogue in China, Vogue in France, Vogue in Italy, Vogue in Mexico, they have different stories, they, somehow they have a different audience, but at the same time they share, um, they share of course, um, a very powerful and, and meaningful brand, um, and they, they need and they need to, need to remain unique, but there is always lessons and things to be learned by sharing and by knowing what are we doing, what everyone is doing. So my role is really trying to connect and bridge all these different um, projects and things uh, and enable uh, knowledge sharing, really. Um, and so I work with editorial teams, I work with the commercial teams, with the data insight team, with the engineering team, with product. 
um, and really trying to um, to make sure that we are aligned that we all know you know it's it's a very big big company so even know who's who and what we're working on um, it's not that obvious <laughs> um, um, we cover so many different time zones that there is no one time and during the day where everyone is awake at the same time how do you um like get over the language barriers or is your main language english um well every country publishes uh in their own language uh but uh almost every country uh but um and the, the, the official language you know, we, we work in is, is English, but at the same time, um, we have a very international team in London. Um, we all speak multiple languages. The team comes from all over the world. And, um, you know, it's challenging when a lot of people uh, need to work in their known native language. But as we were saying before, I think, I, I think, you know, all these challenging are overcome by the fact that um, everyone wants to know more, everyone wants to learn more about what the others are doing. Um, and English or not being super fluent cannot, cannot be a, a barrier. I think generally um, everyone, um, you know, it's just a language really. Okay, for, for me that sounds a bit like the optimal state, I have to say, uh, that everyone wants to know what the others are doing, everyone wants to learn and so on, because I experienced, especially in companies when they work with like, let's say newspapers or uh, in um, commas like old media, radio, TV, like linear media, they want to do their stuff. And if there comes something new, internet, whatsoever, um, they actually don't want to learn or want want to want to keep doing what they're doing. Uh, so, are there any struggles like these at Condé Nast? Or are you like the <laughs> yeah, most no, perfect I'm not, company I'm not in the world? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not describing a, a golden a golden word. Of course, there are many challenges, and of course, um, it is difficult. And of course, you know, being willing to learn and to know what's happening doesn't mean that everyone every time is perfectly aligned on the same things. Um, I think you know there is a challenge of trying to put together so many different landscape and so many different conversation. You know, when we talk about Facebook, Facebook, it's not really the most relevant thing when we think about China. So there are many differences. And, and of course, that that's important. And yes, as you said, changing and changing what, whether it is about changing workflow or changing tools, everyone is used to do the things you're doing. So I think, you know, at the same time, you need to find a compromise and, um, you know, we, we we using Slack across um, all the markets to have one place where we can all talk to each other and, and, and have conversation and, and be in one place. Um, you know, you cannot try to be all in touch and then use 11 different tools. Um, so there is some compromise to do. Uh, and of course, you know, journalists have their own scoop and they have their own habits. So not everyone is um, super happy to share everything. But I think generally the mindset is that um, we are a very powerful network. Um, sometimes I think about what BuzzFeed is doing and expanding all over the world and building a network. And we have the network. We just may need to make sure um, we can make it stronger and make it more powerful by being more join up and finding a good balance between global and local 
My personal approach to that is, for example, when we roll out Slack, I am conscious that many other teams in other countries maybe were using a different tools. So, you know, um, I think as every kind of innovation and every kind of change needs to be mindful and respectful of how things are changing uh, and how impact uh, existing workflow and existing realities. Um, but at the same time, you know, um, you need to find a way to make it work for everyone. So one one when when I was um, when you said when I was reading about your uh, Twitter like the profile what you do the knowledge sharing and uh, like what really struck me was that you're like doing the knowledge sharing across editor and also business side of the things so so the the basic formula for for newspapers for for media for a long time has been like content needs to stand apart from the business side of things you shouldn't even be talking together but um so so what's what's your approach on this because i st- see still this happening a lot uh, out there um yes um i i, I didn't mean that uh, i bridge the work that uh, editorial and commercial do specifically it's more than i work across commercial teams and i i work across the commercial community and then the editorial community so it's not just about you know of course those distinctions stand uh, and here too and the editorial teams it's one thing and the commercial teams another but um, I personally work um, across different areas um, to have a picture as complete as possible of, of what we're working on and what we're doing Th- that actually wasn't a criticism uh, in, no no I understand maybe maybe I did not is- express myself uh, uh, the, in the best way so um, so for example my, my my point was the the editorial is uh, so I'll, I'll say like what's happening over here at, at my newsroom in Slovakia so the editorial has like a lot of statistics they are using like uh, many analytical stu- analytical tools they are fi- finding out stuff Yeah, like what 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 works? What what's what's the best way to um, to distribute the articles and like the, all the content we we are producing? Uh, how to attract like more like uh, people for like who are paying for news because we have a, a paywall. But we are like the, this publishing house is also like trying to uh, build up a, a native advertising unit. And and for example, mm, I, w- I would say like they are not maybe getting all the know-how that the the guys at the editorial have, and this 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 is also maybe the same for 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 uh, uh, I would say maybe our marketing and like v- v- vice versa. Yeah, so I think um, specifically uh, I try to connect people that work in branded content, for example, internationally. So that um, who works in branded content uh, in um, the UK can learn from campaigns we did um, in France or somewhere else. Um, of course, I don't do all this work alone. Um, I just work as a support for many other people and with many other people in the company. Um, and then editorial teams. Um, editorial teams, for example, in London is different because um, in the 
central team that I, I mentioned before, I am part of. Um, we have an editorial team, um, which is Vogue International, um, which works across um, the 11 editions of, of Vogue. Uh, and so they share, for example, best practice and insight um, that of what's working in different in different areas. Um, we're looking at um, social storytelling. We have a Snapchat team that works um, in London with uh, teams in Paris uh, and in London because we have um, a Snapchat Discover on British Vogue and, and Vogue Paris. Um, so it's more connecting uh, teams that do similar jobs across countries uh, than just trying to breach or um, share lesson between editorial and commercial. Um, I think generally um, we're trying to um, be more aware of what's happening in the business uh, and in the industry, um, but that doesn't specifically mean, um, you know, um, overcoming the usual barriers that and that editorial independence that we have uh, and um, and commercial. So let me get back to your tools you're using you said you're using slack and david and i are both at the slack community which was actually kind of the the reason for starting this podcast back back in the days in january with um hendrik and i, I believe federica is also part oh, of it journey yeah. drops yeah. yes okay. i am part of there, it yes yeah, as you know there are so many people on there you you lose sight <laughs> Um, but it got a bit like silent there, but I believe in a company like Condé Nast, there are way more people and it can be crowded and chaotic and, and whatnot and noisy. can be noisy, How, how yes. do you still <laughs> like get to the point in every channel and with every employee and with, with everyone on Slack so that it, it's not like a big chat room with GIFs and smileys and and whatsoever um i think sometimes i'm a bit of like a, a slack police so uh, <laughs> i tried <laughs> um i think you know slack is uh, a place for emoji and gifts and and nice and fun conversation but it's also a very powerful tool that help like lets you communicate and 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 have discussions around topics and across multiples um areas i think it's important. Um, um, we have um, naming convention for the different channels, so you can understand what the channel is about. Um, so a clear description of what's the, the purpose of the channel, so that if you want to join the channel or not, um, you you clearly know why and what's the conversation and why should you be interested. Um, I think you know Slack has has become really good in terms of you know you can customize notification, you can mute channels, you can have um, notification only for specific keywords. Um, I think. Making sure that conversation remains appropriate and on topic um, if uh, in suddenly in the team channel there is, I don't know, an interesting link shared and then the conversation kind of goes and takes another another route and a colleague started to, to discuss about something else, then, you know, why not? You can jump in and say, okay, you can take this conversation to a different channel. Maybe it's becoming too specific and it can go into the team channel for the engineering or for the editorial teams. I think, um, you know, we have kind of clear rules of how we use uh, the mention channel um, so that uh, you're not triggering notifications all the time. I think as every communal space, you have to be mindful, um, you know, 
Um, you wouldn't invite people over for dinner and start shouting in the kitchen with everyone at the same time because <laughs> that will become unbearable. Um, digital tools are more difficult um, to have the perception that everyone is standing in the same kitchen. Um, but it's kind of the same thing. And, you know, I think I... <laughs> And I talk about from the perspective of using and, and living on digital tools, uh, but I don't believe there is one magic tool that will like solve anything. I think everything is about how you use it and the use you make of it. And people are what makes this tool and the, the way you use them. And so, yes, this luck can be noisy. Um, so I think it's always useful to remember um, that and yeah sometimes I jump in and, and I just give suggestions and um, but but it can also improve um, workflows a lot and especially um, working across 11 countries um, it can help um, you know everyone there is always someone awake that can jump in and, and, and help a colleague troubleshooting something so I think it's still powerful. Is it compulsory for All team members at Condinast, or just the team leaders, or no, we 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 haven't um, rolled it out completely. We still we're still implementing it, um, so I don't think you know that's another challenge is how you define what goes on Slack and what goes on email. I think it's a mix of like best practice and use usage, and and trying to understand what works best for everyone. Um, I believe there is no point in writing an, a message on Slack and then having to send an email saying, oh, I sent you a message on Slack. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, that gets more and more um, with the use, uh, with the usage. Um, it's not compulsory. Um, I think it's just useful sometimes. <laughs> yeah, because I always uh, think about how you can optimize knowledge transfer and knowledge sharing and so on. And I see it in uh, the company where I'm working, uh, the um, public um and radio and TV and online station and everyone is using everything and if he said or she said um, I, I send you this I don't know if it's on Facebook Messenger Slack email or another tool or a different tool or and so on and I find it really hard and I try to like implement all these stuff as well but I'm not like head of knowledge sharing or something we don't have this position so I bet it's a good, very good idea to have uh, such a person. But I, I also bet that it's well, one of the it most doesn't mean I know hardest jobs. <laughs> no, no, but I think it's one of one of the really hardest jobs because you have to bring all people together. And I'm really interested in how that how that works. Do you have like um, theories in your background that you've read? No, studied, I think I am so generally very interested in a lot of those roles in the newsroom and in news organization that are bridging something. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's just about being a translator, but not of languages. It's a translator of um, ways of working, a translator of um, different mindsets. You know, a lot of the transformation going from print to digital is about digital mindset and cultural change. And that's tough, uh, adapting and changing and being prepared of all the changes that sometimes are overwhelming where everyone is super busy doing the job, it is overwhelming and it is a lot. Um, but I think I, what I really like about my job is I, I get to talk to so many people and they're doing amazing work around the world and trying to translate, uh, again, not specifically a different language, but translate 
different ways of doing things. So currently I am um, taking an um, online course on uh, product management um, for journalists. Uh, and um, organized by the Knight Centers for the Americas. And um, it's really interesting and it's fascinating if you think how the role of product managers are now getting into the newsroom and how um, it's important to, to bridge the, the ways of, of working that the engineering team or the product team has compared to the editorial teams. Um, and if you look around, more and more of those roles are emerging. Um, the Washington Post announced um, a few months ago um, that uh, introduced three new roles um, that are meant to standardize digital responsibilities around the newsroom. And if you look at those titles, one is like operation editor, product editor, project editor, and all these roles are in the newsrooms. Um, the Financial Times as um, Someone, uh, Robin Kwong, who does, who is a head of digital delivery, uh, and it's bridging project management and is, is bringing project management and design thinking into the newsroom. So I think more and more there will be roles that are supposed to um, help facilitate the work across different teams. Um, you know, it's nothing new. We were uh, a few years ago uh, the interactive developer, the journalist who can code, <laughs> and now and now all of these skills uh, are less exotic and, and we're more used to that. So I've always been very interested in, in all of this that happens, you know, in between uh, things and in between boundaries. Um, I am one in, in London, I'm one of the um, co-organizers of, of um, Aksakas London. Uh, and Aksakas London is a community, um, it, it, it's a chapter of the global movement of Aksakas and, and, the, and the aim of the organization is bringing um, ax journalists and ACAs, um, developers, technolo technologists together to talk about journalism and to talk about the things to do. And you know, a few years ago that was, it was really rare and you, you didn't really have a lot of developers sitting in the newsroom. It's getting more and more common. It's not everywhere, of course. Um, so I think a I find particularly fascinating as part also of my job, but there's so many other roles, those roles they don't really fit in one box or in the other, but they're meant to um, make collaboration better and, and, and communication better. Okay, but you, I have to say you're not the first person on the podcast who was just visiting almost every uh, newsroom in the world <laughs> or something like that. Um, but especially for you, I think it's kind of hard, or I, I suppose it's kind of hard because you see all the like best practices, but how hard is it like to implement only the best and how hard is it to not like lose track of what you've seen there and what you could implement there but you cannot implement it like right away because it needs time i believe that's a, like a really hard job to do it is and also you know not every lesson works for everywhere so um i think and it's more about enabling teams um to choose what to do you know i'm not mandating anything um, I think the team in London is, is supporting and, and helping and informing and, um, and uh, contributing um, to um, things that um, we're doing across, across the entire business. Um, and I think, you know, um, I take 
one thing at a time. Um, I try to um, create um, guides and, 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 and best practice and, and writing and, uh, and send useful links. Um, a lot of these things are already out there. Um, we do um, monthly calls um, with different um, communities around the company, so where they tell their own stories, they, own, they tell their own um, case studies. Um, which can be applicable to one country, two countries, 11 countries, not everything works everywhere. Um, so then um, I do internal conferences. Um, so I, um, again, I, I make sure that um, we decide and, and we try to, to make the best out of the time we spend in person and how we continue the conversation online. And for that, again, um, Slack is quite, is quite important. Um, it is a lot and it is overwhelming. Um, imagine that each of these departments I mentioned before have full teams um, who work in support of the local teams um, all the time. So it's not just out, out to one person or a small group of, of people um, to keep up with everything. Um, I personally have a lot of notebooks and take a lot of notes. <laughs> uh, okay, so you do it like... Really I have a Trello board. I have a Trello board oh, for a Trello myself. Oh, so not like a notebook. I also, I also have a notebook, a, a paper notebook. Okay. A paper. Um, I really love stationery, um, funny enough, despite working for a digital company. <laughs> um, but I have my own Trello board, um, so I keep track of the different projects and, um, you know, lots of to-do lists, <laughs> um, as everyone else. Uh, I try to prioritize and, and, and get to the things that are most important um, and, and try to keep an eye on, on, on projects that are more long-term, I think. So, okay. so I guess I have to be the bad guy again because we're nearing our time when we have to end. You're always the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, <laughs> but we always promise to bring the, the guest, uh, guest back. So uh, I would actually love to talk more about uh, Hex and Hackers in London and uh, and uh, all, all also like the, the, the tools you're using but um, maybe another time. <laughs> but yes, but thank you definitely. so much for coming to the podcast and talking to us. Thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, uh, yes, everyone listening, if you're not uh, already subscribed to this podcast, please do so. You can follow us everywhere. Apple Podcasts on uh, Mark managed to uh, put us on Google Play Podcast as well. Yes, uh, magic. All the all the links are, are out there. Follow us on Twitter, and um, I don't know what else to say, Mark. There, actually, we talked about uh, the Neiman Lab and journalism.co.uk. There is one episode where we have two guests in one episode, who are from Neiman Lab and journalism.co.uk. Um, we will link that, or you find it on SoundCloud and iTunes as well. That's very worth listening. Like every episode is worth listening. So please subscribe and because always kind of keeps forgetting it because I always say it. Uh, please, guys, don't forget to always check your facts. Thank you, Federica, for coming to the podcast. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank, Thank you very you. much. <laughs>